when we left off last week, we, we had this remarkable movement on the part of Jesus, who in, this, in these final hours right before his crucifixion, called his disciples to celebrate together with him a Passover. It would be known as the last Passover, the last supper. In a few hours after it, he would be betrayed by one who was sitting around that very table that we had described, that U-shaped table with its couches and places, that, that at the center of which was a table where they ate together as they reclined and sat. We talked about how Jesus, in the midst of this environment that we had talked about, had, which was very fractured and divided. The fact is that the men who made their way into that room uh, were not doing well. Jesus' disciples had been bickering and fighting. They were competing with one another. There was a lot of uh, discussion about who deserved what place. We even, we even are pretty confident that the seating arrangements themselves had contributed to an, a divided environment. It just wasn't a good place. It's like when you come into a room and you can feel the division in the room. You feel the tension in the air. That was what it was like. And it was supposed to be a, a final moment, this special moment, a sacred moment. And it was being violated by a lot of bad feelings going in a lot of different directions. And there was a confusion as to what really Jesus, what mattered to him. And, and there was issues around who was sitting where. And it was just, it was just not good. And, no one, and we talked about how nobody had, had bothered to have their feet washed and because there was no servant present and, and how no one had volunteered for the job. And so they were all there participating but divided. And in the middle of that feeling and that moment, Jesus, of all people, he's the one. He, he gives them a lesson they'll never forget. He takes up the, the servant's garb and he wraps himself and he picks up the basin very quietly and he starts going around the back and in the, out of the shadows, he starts to wash the feet of his disciples. And when he comes to Peter, Peter, of course, we ha he has this altercation with Jesus. Where Peter, Jesus, you know, as Jesus starts to wash his feet, Peter says, basically, what are you doing, Lord? You're not going to wash my feet. Basically, you're, the, you're, my, you're my teacher, you're my master, you're my Lord. You, you, I follow you. If anybody's going to wash feet here, it'll be us washing yours. You don't wash feet. In his conception of greatness, that wasn't the role of someone like Jesus. And Jesus says, you know what, <laughs> you just need to let me wash your feet. And, um, you know, this will all make sense later. Just let me do it. And you would, you would have thought that the gentle prodding of Jesus would have broken the resistance of Peter. I mean, after all, what's the big deal? Just let him do it. But Peter was, was resistant even more. And he pushes Jesus away, and he says, you will, and he becomes not more pliable, but more firm in his conviction. There is no way in the world that someone like you, you, will ever wash my feet. I'm just making it, I'm saying it in front of everybody. You'll never wash my feet. And Jesus, of course, we talked about this. Jesus comes back and he says, listen to me. If you don't let me wash your feet, if you do not submit to my service in this moment, you and I are finished. And the idea being, of course, that, Peter, if the, if, if the condition for you submitting to things that I'm asking of you comes under the umbrella of when it only makes sense to you, then we have a big problem. 
if the condition of your working with me is when it makes sense to you, and when it doesn't, you'll say no, then we, have, we are on a pathway that's going to lead us completely apart. Because the things that are coming aren't going to make sense. And I'm going to need you to, to remember to do what I'm asking, even when it doesn't work in the way that you think it should go. And we talked about that. And we talked about how Peter, in the, as he, and he gets it. He, when the stakes are raised at that level, he comes back and he says, all right, Lord, then don't just wash my feet. You know, wash my hands, wash my head, wash all of me. And Jesus, and we laughed at it. He said, well, just wash your feet is fine. I don't need to wash the rest of you. And, and then he, he, he proceeds to do it. And I thought about how we talked about how the, the washing of the feet is in many ways a, a, a picture, a symbol of the lowliness. When Jesus comes low, he, he, we need to lay aside our pride and receive what it is he wants to give us. And the reason I put those, you'll notice beyond the main text, which is in the center of the page, there's Philippians 2 and there's another another portion of scripture in the gray box there from Corinthians and both those passages talk about Jesus and how he has come to us as a servant and how he has given his life for us and how the idea of a, of a savior who would ask us to embrace him in his death is in some ways Paul talks about it at the bottom of the page there it's almost repulsive the the idea of embracing a savior in the indignity of the cross and the shame of it, it seems either foolish or just crazy. And yet, can we hear Jesus when he says, if you need to receive, if you're going to receive the saving or the life that I want to give, you need to receive me in my brokenness. And you need to let me give, do for you what we can never do for ourselves. And that means that's an invitation to embrace him in his lowliness and his brokenness and in the scandal of the cross. And really it has everything to do with the human will. It's almost like Peter says, well, I, I, you know, I don't want, I don't need, I don't want, I don't like that. I don't want you to. And Jesus says, unless you let me serve you in this way, we don't have a relationship. That relationship, it's like he's saying, my relationship, the life that I give is contingent on our willingness to embrace him in the cross. It's always going to be our choice. And there's something about us that, that says it's too simple or it's, it, it rubs our pride the wrong way, and yet the Lord says, you must embrace me in that brokenness to have the life that I want to give. And just interesting, because Peter was struggling about letting him serve him. Now notice what it says. Go back to verse, thir verse 12 in John 13 there. It says, so that when he had washed their feet and taken his garments, he sat down. Again, and he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? And he says, you call me teacher and you call me Lord and you say, well, for that is true. That is who I am. I am your teacher and I am your Lord. And there's no question that Jesus was making a distinction right there. He's saying, you're right. We're not just a, in, the, in one sense, we're not all equals here. You're following me. I am your teacher and I am your Lord. There's no question about it. But do you understand what I've just done? Do you understand this? He says, you, this is what you call me. But he says, no, think about it. He says, if I then, your Lord and your teacher, the one you revere, respect, and honor, have washed your feet, then you ought also to be open to washing one another's. Remember how reluctant they had been? He says, for I've given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. I've given you an example that I hope you never forget. 
it's a model. It's an object lesson on humility and how we're supposed to treat and think about one another so that it's not about, listen, he's saying, it's not about who gets the recognition. It's not about who gets the best seat. Listen to me. It's not about who gets to avoid serving. It's about learning how to live with courageous humility, he's saying, and how to, how to even at times be utterly disregarded. He's making an appeal. He's addressing something because this is a, uh, there's a feeling here that, that they don't want to give. They don't want to serve. They, they are, it's about their turf and their, their place. And, and Jesus shows them that there's a higher way, but that higher way is going low. I was thinking about this whole idea of giving. Because what basically Jesus is saying, it really is more blessed to give than to receive. And, and that doesn't make sense. You know, I did put, there's a, there is a portion of scripture here, 2 Corinthians 9, 6 and 7. This is a passage, by the way, these two verses are often used in relation to giving out of our resources or it has to do with um, honoring the Lord with our money. But I want us to think in a broader way about giving, period. And look at this he says, this I say, look at this verse. He who sparingly, he or she who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. If we are a, a person who is self-focused and very tight with our life, then the harvest that's going to come out of that is going to be very also tight and poor. Notice, and he who sows bountifully, spreads the seed out, is a blesser, will reap bountifully. It's a basic principle he goes on to say, so let each one of us give as they purpose in their heart, not grudgingly or to get something back or with a bad attitude. He says, no, on the, on, the Lord loves a cheerful giver. In other words, when we determine to give, give. Give without, without a heart that needs to you know, be concerned about, am I going to be acknowledged or am I going to get it treated back or about equity or you know, maybe we give, but if we do it, we do what we do. We do it with grudge in our heart or anger or resistance. He's saying, don't do that. Don't do that. Jesus, and Jesus himself models this. Now go back, go back to the verse again. Go back to verse 16. As after he says, I've given you an example that you should do as I, I have done to you, he says, most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than the one who sent him. It's obvious. The one who sends is greater. That's the one that's been sent out is serving the interests of the one who sends them. And he says that if you know these things, look, blessed are you if you do them. Now we think, blessed are you if you're waited on hand and foot. <laughs> blessed are you if other people do what we want done for us. That's typical. But you know what Jesus is saying? More blessed are you when you learn that the greatest joy, true happiness, you know what blessed means? It's, called, it's, it's happiness at its deepest level. That the way God wired us is that we're at our best, we're helping people and blessing people. We think that it really has to do with us getting, but really the, the highest places that we will go is when we operate at the level of, of, of a giver. And I'm, and I'm talking about how we bless with our life and who we are. Some of us, interestingly enough, we're really good at receiving things. And we're not so good at giving. We have high expectations of how we should be treated. 
but a very low expectation about how we're supposed to treat others. We wouldn't see it that way, but that happens. Others of us, listen, we actually have a hard, harder time. If someone were to ask us, what do you have a harder time? Giving or receiving? There are people, some of us here, who actually it's harder for us to receive something because, and I was thinking about it, someone said to me, you know, I have a harder time receiving. And I, for a while it was foreign to me. I said, why? You know? <laughs> and he said, I don't know. You know, I just I feel like sometimes I don't need it. And I, I feel like somehow I'll be obligated. And so sometimes Christ-likeness looks like receiving something that we don't need and, and we'd be tempted to say, I don't want you, to, I, I don't want to owe you. And being able to receive that with grace, there's also a beauty in that. Some of us, it's just the Lord wants to teach us how to, how to be less self, self-concerned and fearful. We often talk about the, the spirit of poverty as being really, it's the fear of not having enough. Therefore, it's the domain of the rich and the poor. It's the idea that I don't have enough, so I have to clutch things. I can't bless. There's not enough blessing to go around. Jesus was getting right at that. Notice, he goes on. He, you know, and I'll just say this. Here, think about what's happened now. There in this room, they were all divided. There, there's this tension that was there. Jesus has things to say. He can't, this, it, the, the, the environment is not conducive to just kind of talking in a, in a there's a lack of, of unity. It's divisive in this, it's, 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 again, fractured apart. And so when Jesus washes the feet, when he comes in and he starts to break into this, he pushes into their pride and their spirit of competition that's in the room, and he starts to get at it. And, he, and then he says, blessed are you when you serve, when you give, when you do what I have done. He, he starts to get into that, and all of a sudden you can just feel the tension come. It's like, yeah. We get that, Lord. That's a great, there's this, there's an emergence of unity that starts to make its way back in. It's like, yes, thank you. you whatever was there, it's kind of getting broken into. And, and, and so all of a sudden, you can imagine them as they move forward in the supper. They're, they're, they're friends again, brothers again, bound together by a common love for the teacher. There's no question we're here together. We're, we're enjoying one another's coming. It's like when something that was, just an elephant in the room, and it was causing problems. But when we get at it, we deal with it, we can now move forward. And it just feels right. It felt better. It felt better. And all of a sudden, in the middle of this better, Jesus, and, and I could just see him, you know, pass the lamb, you know, give me, a, you know, they're talking away, and the people are getting past things, eating, dipping in the herbs, you know, wiping their beards, and doing all the things that they do. And they're all there, and they're talking and laughing and, and just enjoying the moment together. And, and then Jesus, who set that up, does something that blows it all apart. He busts open the peace. He says something that almost didn't have any logical introduction to it. You look at the verse itself and you see it. It's, it says that he says, and I do not speak concerning all of you. What I'm about to say doesn't apply to all of you. What is that? And he says, I need to say something. And he quotes a verse. A verse, by the way, that they would have out of Psalm 41 been very familiar with having grown up. These were 
boys who had grown up, men who had grown up as young men around the Older Testament, they, were, they understood the scriptures, they knew Psalm, and they knew this Psalm and what it was referring to. And it was a kind of unusual thing for Jesus to refer to a, in this environment, but basically what he did is he quoted David, and he said this, he says, but this scripture that is now going to be fulfilled, I know whom I've chosen, I know who's here, and I know why you're here, and I know what's going on, he says, but listen, he says, this, he quotes David, he says, he who eats bread, with me has lifted up his heel against me. And it's like, what? What are you talking about, Lord? Now, earlier on, remember when he had washed the feet of Peter and Peter made that big thing, you know, you know, wash all of me. And he says, no, you know, you came in, bathe. I just want to wash your feet. He goes, you're all clean, except he says, but not all of you. It was like he had thrown that, that phrase in there, and it didn't really make sense. And then he had just kind of gone right on talking, and the whole thing has shifted out of that. And, and so it was like, what did that mean? And, and now, all of a sudden, he's in the middle of this thing that's starting to get better. Everybody's enjoying one another's company, celebrating the meal together. And all of a sudden, he says, one of you is good. Basically, he says, one of you is about to betray me. And... And you can see them in the room. They're, they're, they're probably their eyes are scanning all around and beginning to look and, and just thinking about, what are you talking about? What's he talking about? They understood the verse exactly what it meant. No, look at verse 19 here. It says that, now I tell you, I'm, I'm, I'm t the reason I'm, it's almost like Jesus says, he quotes the verse, he says, you know, and the reason I'm telling you this is I'm telling you this now before it comes to pass. Notice, he says that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. I'm telling you ahead of time so that when it happens, you will know that I am he. I am, I am the Messiah, the promised one. All that you thought I was, I am. I'm telling you this. He says, and, and remember this. He says, now I tell you this before it comes to pass. Truly I say to you, I tell you this, of great assurance. I'm, I'm, he says, I say to you, look at verse 20. He who receives, listen, who, he who receives whomever I send receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. Remember that it's like, remember that the one who betrays me is not simply betraying me, they're betraying the one who sent me. And remember this, when, just like when people reject you, he says, he goes, they're not really rejecting you, he says, to them. They're rejecting me. And he's pushing into that. Well, there's silence. There's each man, I'm assuming, begins to scan the eyes, look away. What is he talking about? Someone's probably thinking now he talked about, he talked about how this is what we were talking about. They, they all knew Caiaphas, the high priest, and others. There, had, there were some plots to kill Jesus. They were aware of those plots. It was, in fact, it was one of the reasons. It's one of the reasons why we told him we didn't want to come here because we knew that there were some people who wanted to kill him. But yet he, the master had insisted on it. But now that's not what he's saying. He's not saying it's the high priest. He's saying it's one of us. One of us at this table, who is it? And, and, and you can see them all sort of doing, thinking it through. What it, who is it? Is this what he's saying? By the way, it appears that Judas didn't flinch. He didn't flinch. He didn't show anything. He was apparently unmoved. The hollow-eyed man was playing his part well. Deception had found its home inside. He says nothing. Finally, Jesus, 
as each one looks in their own heart, Jesus, Jesus is just, you could feel it, just the, the hypocrisy to his left. This is where Jesus would have been here. Remember we talked about it? Young John to his right. Judas to his left. And nothing was coming. And Jesus, it says here, notice, troubled in his spirit. Jesus has said he was troubled in his spirit. And he says, truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. He throws it out there. And he says, and I say to you, one of you shall betray me. And then verse 22, and then the disciples looked at one another and they were perplexed about whom he spoke. You could, you could feel the uneasiness. The, the scripture captures it. The fear, the uneasiness creeping into the room. As Jesus says it blatantly, clearly, it's one of you. And each one of them is looking at the other and wondering, could it be? Lord, in fact, you know what? We look at, when you look at Matthew's account and you, you, you take John's account, which we're looking at, and then you contrast it with Matthew's account, both of them emphasize different elements. But one of the interesting things in Matthew's account about what happened is it says this. Check this out. It says that each of them were sorrowful. And then they began to say to him at different times, in different turns, at different moments as the hour went on, Lord, is it me? That's always amazed me. Why they would, would, would in the minute, there must have been something about this moment that caused them to look inside. Part of them said, Lord, is it me? Because he says, I will be, one of you will betray me. One of you is, Lord, is it me? Why would you ask that if you weren't guilty? Why would you wonder, Lord, is it me? Am I the one? But they asked. Even Judas eventually asked. Remember how the room is set up? It's, it's set up in that, again, with Judas's left. Judas is not showing anything. John's there. There's... We, we know that Judas was, you know, we think of Judas, oh, he was like the marginalized one. No, Judas was a person who had status in the group. He held the, he was a treasurer. He was highly respected. In fact, some people think that in this arrangement, the person on the left was as, was as much a point of honor as the person on the right. And so the, his was a very privileged position. And we know from what happens that there are conversations that are going on because of the close proximity that is there. Peter, he's not there. He so badly wants to know who it is. Can't contain himself. But he's afraid. Normally he would just blurt out and ask the question, well, Lord, just tell us who it is. But after the lashing that he's been taking for the past hours, the last time he spoke up, you can see he's a little gun shy about it. It's like one one of these things, confrontations with Jesus is enough. But I want to know so bad. And we know, we're going to talk about this next week. He goes, John, ask, ask him. <laughs> I want to know. I want to know. Ask him. Oh. Ask him. You get this whole thing going on. And it's great because it shows you he's so reluctant to do it himself. But he wants, he needs to know, like us. We're going to talk about what happens. What do we need to know? Because I don't want to just look at the passage and then go, that's great. It's nice. I, it's, I appreciate it. What do we need to know? I want us to think about a couple of things quick. One of them is this. That really, this has everything to do with understanding, at least a part of this, is that, the real victory of, of 
of this Christian life that, that happiness is not so much in the knowing, but it's in the doing. That you go back to that 17th verse, and what did Jesus say? Blessed are you not if you what? Know these things. The, the, the secret to the joy in verse 17 is not in the knowing or the appreciation of the ideal. It's in the doing. It's in the implementation in our lives. If it's disconnected from our life, if we only admire the things of Jesus from afar and never actually contend to work them out in our lives, we'll never know the real joy that we are meant to have, that the happiness is always in the doing. He doesn't say, happy are you if you know about them and have considered them and appreciate them. He says, no, happy are you if you do them. Think about it in the book of James where he says, faith without works is dead. It's like a tree, but it can't bear fruit. That the fruit is always in the, the doing. It is in the application. It's, it's when we really lay this stuff, this works only when it's applied. Which means we're going to wrestle with things. And we're going to struggle. And we're going to have to appeal to God. We're going to have to get others involved in our life who are making this journey with us. It doesn't just happen. It's not like, oh, the, happy, the joy of the Lord is when I understand. No, the joy of the Lord is in the doing. It's in the living it out. It's in the struggle. And that reminds me, secondly, of this. That we must always, this passage, if it tells us anything, it is this, that we must always suspect our own unrighteousness. And we must cultivate a humility about our lives. Because, think about, think about this. When Jesus says to the disciples, one of you is going to betray me. It's not like every eye in the room again went over and looked at Judas. It was like each one of them instinctively. There's something about drawing near to God. The closer we get, the more we know there's something in our own heart that is capable it, it really gets at our pride. The closer we get, the more we know, Lord, I, I also have, listen, a traitor in me. It is. I have it in me to deny you. It's there. It is. When I get close, I know it. See, there's something about that probing word, the way Jesus said it, in that room, that, that the amazing part of it is not that each one said, oh, it's him, it's him, it's him. Each one was pushed internal. Each one looked back in their own heart. Each one started to question their own loyalty to the Lord. They knew there were times when they had not always been what they should have been. Just like us, there are times when we know, we know whether it's something we do or what we haven't done, what we should have said, what we didn't say, what we did, but with a bad attitude, the things that all really honestly, the, the, sometimes we, we get into a mess. We, we figure, I've already blown it anyway. I'm just going to go all the way. Then afterwards, we're sitting there having gorged ourselves and we feel awful. Betrayed him. And yet the beautiful, he still reaches for us. And what's that to do? I think it's a reminder, listen, what I'm trying to say is suspect our own righteousness. What do I mean? Never assume we got this thing all right. Always try to stay humble. Be merciful. Have compassion on those who are struggling. Not so quick to judge things. Blessed, listen, blessed are the merciful, for they will obtain mercy. Who is it, Lord? Is it me? Last thing, Jesus gives an example for us to follow. And in the Christian life, it has everything to do with following the example of Jesus. What are you talking about? Okay, practically speaking, I'm saying when Jesus walks into this room, Look, look at verse, okay, verse 12. 
Think about it. He gets up and he says, do you know what I have done? Do you know, do you know what I just did? He watched it. Do you understand what I've just done? You are all divided against each other. None of you want to serve each other. You're offended over this. You're competing with this. You're worried about that. None of, do, you, do you understand what I just did? Do you know what I've done? Do you know what I, if you call me your Lord, see what he's talking about is relational humility. He's talking about, and I don't want you counting up how many times you served and therefore you deserve to get it back. It's not about that. It's not about keeping tally of who did the what for what or why you owe me or why I should get this seat. It's not about that. My way has to do with learning how to live with relational humility. I want my, this group, you, my men, you, I want you to learn not to always seek for your own self and it take, be so quick to take offense at things, but learn how, learn how to love one another and be open to serving one another. Not so quick to get angry and let those walls build up. And this, man, this, apply, this applies to every. This applies to our whole life. I mean, how much of our life is 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 is, is rocked and ruined and affected because we're keeping score of things. They should do this. This is. I am not being appreciated. And I'm not saying there aren't times where that's legitimate. But the way of Christ, the way of Christ, is the way of a servant. And that's going to challenge us. It's going to challenge our heart. It is not always easy. There's a cross at times. It costs God something. And doing what is right in His eyes will at times cost us, but it will have a dividend that brings life and not death. So Lord, I pray that You would speak to our hearts about what it means sometimes, Lord, not to be so proud or offended or so caught up, Lord, in the thing that wasn't said to us or the deed that wasn't done or the way that we've been taken for granted. And I know those things are real and you know our heart, Lord, and you know there are moments where, yes, there is there's a need for balance. I get all that, Lord, but you know what? At the end of the day, I pray that you will remind us there are times when you are challenging us to walk the way of a servant and to return not evil for evil, but, Lord, to learn your way, which is the higher way, by going low. And I pray that you would challenge us, Lord. We want to be more open to you. We do. We want to pass down generational blessing, not generational curse, Lord. We want to, we want to be people who are givers of life, not perpetuators of, of things that cause pain and hurt and wounds, Lord. There's enough of that stuff going on. I pray that you would help us, Lord, to just make us, make us alive. May, don't let us get numb to things, Lord, and apathetic. Give us the gift of being alive and help us to be open and to be open to what it is you want to do and open to, want, to wanting to walk in your steps, Lord. Don't let us fall off the deep end, but keep contending for us, Lord. And I just really pray for that, Lord, for all of us. Thank you. Keep serving us, Lord. <laughs> Jesus' name, amen.